Our scripture reading is from Acts 26, 32, through Acts 27, verse 2. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And when it was decided that we should go for, for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, it was in 1913 uh, that Theodore Roosevelt began a journey that would almost take his life. Uh, in fact, it did take the lives of uh, several of the men on the trip and nearly took the life of his son. Um, and Candace Millard tells the story of this journey in her thrilling book, The River of Doubt. It's one of my favorite books I've read so far this year. And Roosevelt had always been a person of endurance, really from the time that he was a child. Um, but probably one of my favorite stories of, of his life of endurance was uh, when he was running for president, he was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he was preparing to give a speech, and he was shot uh, by a saloon keeper, and the bullet went through his uh, steel uh, eyeglass case and then into the 50-page the speech that he had folded in his coat pocket, and then the bullet lodged in his chest. But, but Roosevelt concluded, he's like, I'm not coughing up blood, so I don't think the bullet went into my lungs. And he gives the 90-minute speech uh, after that and doesn't get help until after he's given the speech. I mean, that's, that's endurance, right? But nothing in, in his life would prove a greater test of endurance uh, than the journey in 1913. He was 55 years old. Uh, he had just lost a, a third attempt uh, to be president. If he would have won, he would have been his third term as president. And to keep his mind off of that defeat, he made plans to explore a previously unmapped river in the heart of the Amazon basin that no sort of non-native explorer had ever traveled. And as Roosevelt and his team, including his son Kermit, began their journey to the headwaters, they faced incredible challenges before ever even seeing the river. They had to travel a long way overland to even reach the headwaters of the river and no one knew where those, that those waters would eventually reach the Amazon. It was difficult travel overland, carrying lots of gear and equipment, soaking rains. And that was all before they even started the real journey. And the river proved incredibly difficult to navigate in the heavy dugout canoes that they had. There was lots of rapids and waterfalls that required them to regularly stop, take all of their gear out of the river, hack a pathway through the jungle, build ramps and rollers to move their equipment alongside the river, and then put in around the waterfall or rapids. Sometimes they would only make progress of a mile or two in a, in a day of brutal work. But that wasn't all they had to endure. There was disease, malaria, infection, incredibly dangerous wildlife. What they feared most was the piranhas that inhabited the river at every bend. They also faced attack by hostile indigenous people. And six weeks into the journey, Roosevelt cut his leg on a rock in the river as they were trying to move one of the canoes and it became infected. And he suffered a fever that nearly killed him. But after two months of journeying down the river, they finally met the Amazon, 
And Roosevelt had endured this incredible journey, though he had lost nearly 50 pounds and was incredibly sick. He returned home to the United States triumphant. And today that river that had been known as the River of Doubt is today officially called the Rio Roosevelt. When in your life have you had to face incredible hardship that required endurance? Uh, What's a situation maybe that you're even facing today right now that requires endurance? Well, this morning as we enter into the final verses, the final chapters of the book of Acts, we are going to see a journey that Paul takes, his journey to Rome. It's an epic journey that that we'll see is going to to rival anything that, that Roosevelt had to endure. And what we're going to see as we look at this account, as we follow Paul on his trip to Rome, is that you and I can endure anything ultimately because Jesus has overcome everything. We can endure anything because Jesus has overcome everything. And maybe you're in a difficult season at work or at school. Maybe you're in a difficult uh, relationship or your marriage is in a tough season. Ultimately, Jesus has overcome everything. So we can endure in the midst of those things. So we're going to start looking at this incredibly detailed journey that Luke records for us. He he starts it in Acts chapter 27 and it carries us all the way through the second or the first half of Acts chapter 28. And after we've journeyed with Paul on this uh, epic trip to Rome, then we'll just pause at the end to, to see what this account teaches us about how to endure as a church together. Uh, In many ways, what we find in these final chapters of the book is Paul's own sort of via dolorosa, his own sort of journey uh, to the cross. And the story unfolds in three acts. The first act is the sea. Last week, we left Paul standing in chains before the governor Festus, making his appeal to King Agrippa, trying to get him to become uh, a Christian, to believe the good news about Jesus. And as Acts chapter 27 opens, Paul is now making his journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome. He had appealed as a Roman citizen to have Caesar hear his case, and the time has now come to make the journey. Now this journey from Caesarea to Rome, under sort of normal ideal circumstances, it would have taken about five weeks by sea to make this journey. But it quickly becomes clear in the account as Luke tells us that the conditions are going to be anything but ideal. Now at this time, there certainly weren't any direct flights from Rome uh, to Caesarea or vice versa, but there weren't any direct shipping routes either. It wasn't like Paul could just stop on a, hop on a nonstop ship from Caesarea to Rome. In fact, there wasn't even really that kind of a commercial travel uh, industry like we think about today where you could just buy a ticket as a passenger. And instead, the arrangement was a lot more like a, sort of like an Uber of the ocean kind of setup. You would just find a ship that was going uh, kind of where you wanted to go and you would just buy a, a passage on that ship. You'd rideshare to the next port and then find from there the next leg of your journey going on. So the first ship they take takes them to Sidon. So you're going to see that on the map. They go from uh, Caesarea up up the coast of Sidon and from there they sailed through the Mediterranean Sea but the wind is against them and so it really slows them down and they're already starting to be delayed on the journey. 
Except the concern here on the delay isn't that uh, they will miss their connecting flight. I mean, this is a journey with a lot of layovers. If you've ever flown, you know the more layovers you have, the more risk of something going wrong or getting delayed. But here the big delay, the big concern about a delay isn't that they'll miss their next ship, their connection. Rather, that they've already started this journey late into the season. And that if they get delayed too much, they'll be pushed into the dangerous winter ocean season. In fact, Luke tells us that when they reached a place called Fairhaven on the island of Crete, it was already the the day of the fast, which referred to the the day of atonement, which we know it was a movable holiday, but it was either late September or early October already when they reached Crete. And at this point, Paul warns the ship's crew and soldiers who are guarding him that they should not go on. We need to stay here at Fairhaven. It is way too late to be traveling. Paul says, let's stay here. But they ignore him, which is astounding because sea travel was normal. You wouldn't undertake a journey after mid-September. And travel was was strictly avoided through mid-November, through mid-March. And it's already probably early October at this point. Listen to verses 9 through 12. Luke writes, So much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. And Paul advised them, saying... Sirs, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So against Paul's advice and wisdom, they attempt to make it around the island to a harbor called Phoenix. Now, this harbor, Phoenix, it was only at most 50 miles away from Fairhaven where they were. And so it should have taken less than a day, a day at most, for them to sail along the coast of of Crete to this other port. But they never make it there. Because Act 2, the storm. You see, as they're attempting to sail along the coast of Crete, the the gentle winds that they're hoping will propel them along become a massive storm. In fact, the word that Luke uses to describe the word is uh, is the Greek word that actually our English word typhoon comes from. It's a massive hurricane-like storm. So instead of them sailing gently, easily along the coast of Crete to Phoenix, they are pushed out into open sea. And they sail alongside of, of a smaller island, and it's all they can do to strengthen the ship and secure it for the storm, but they're fearing they'll run aground, and so they, they let the ship, the ship drift even further out away from land. They're driven out into the open ocean. There's nothing but water all around wherever they look in any direction. The next day, they abandon all the ship's cargo to lighten the load. By the third day, the storm has become so severe, they're still trapped in it that they throw all the ship's tackle and gear overboard. And after many days of storm and clouds, they had not been able to see the sun or the stars. And it's almost hard for us to imagine a world in, in this way, but this is before the compass. It's certainly way before any kind of GPS navigation systems. If you could not see the stars and the sun to navigate, you were utterly lost at sea with no features to guide you. And so by verse 20, they have all but given up hope. 
They are lost in the open ocean. Verse 20, when neither the sun nor the stars had appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Have you ever been there? Been in a place where you just felt like all hope was gone? When you didn't know where you would go or how you would go on? How would you endure? After my freshman year of college, I took a mission trip to the Philippines with some friends from school. And as we were flying back the, over the Pacific Ocean, uh, the plane uh, got caught in one of those just big, big thunderstorms. And um, I don't know if you've ever been on a plane in one of those moments, but it's, you get the updrafts and the downdrafts. So one minute the plane feels like it's falling out of the sky, and the next minute you feel like you're being shoved up uh, rapidly into the sky. Lots of wind and turbulence. And everyone on the plane was just incredibly fearful. And that's what these sailors and soldiers, these passengers and prisoners, that's what they were enduring on this ship. But instead of lasting for just a few hours, like on the airplane I was on, they had been at this for days. And they had given up hope. Uh, no one's eating, even though they have food. They haven't thrown the food overboard. It's clear that they have food, but maybe they're just too seasick from the constant tossing of the ship. Maybe they're just too um, scared, too worried, too anxious to eat. But in this moment, Paul speaks up, and he begins to encourage everyone else on board. He says, look, the ship is going to be destroyed. Okay, okay thanks, Paul. Um, but, but hear me out. Everyone is going to live. And how does Paul know this? He says, well, an angel told me. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I, I told you so, Paul says, we should not have done this. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how much time passes between that conversation and the moment that they finally reach an island to run aground on. But next, Luke tells us that on the 14th night of the journey, they're in the central Mediterranean Sea. And at this point, the soldiers begin to think that they are nearing land. And so they start taking soundings with ropes to determine how deep the ocean floor is. And they realize it is getting shallower and shallower. They're getting closer to land. But now they start to be fearful that before they reach the island or they get close enough that the ship will be dashed to pieces on, on rocks. And so in the middle of the night, a few of the sailors, realizing that they're relatively close to land, kind of conspire together and say, Let's, we're going to take the, the sh they call it the ship's boat, but the, like the lifeboat, the smaller boat on board, we're going to lower this down. We're getting off of the ship. We're going to find our way to the ocean or to the, the, the shore and get out of the ocean. But Paul sort of, he notices what happens, what's happening. He catches them in the act and he, he tells the centurions and the soldier on the ship and, and he says, look, if they don't stay on board, we're not going to make it. And so we all have to stay together on the ship. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. 
And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. And then at the last, the day, the morning finally dawns. And Paul, in this moment, starts taking care of the ship and the crew and the soldiers himself. And you think it would be the opposite, that the, the crew, the sailors, the soldiers, they would be the ones taking care of the passengers and the prisoners, but, but not here. Paul actually is the one caring for them. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, eat something, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you, from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks in the presence of God and the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And next they try to navigate the ship uh, to the shore of Malta, but instantly they run into trouble. The ship gets stuck on a sandbar, and the waves immediately begin to break the ship apart. It's already been tested and beaten for so many days, and the waves just start tearing it apart. And at this moment, the soldiers on board, recognizing any of the prisoners we have in this boat, they're going to escape. They decide we're going to kill all the prisoners. That's, our, that's on us if they escape. So we're just going to kill them to keep that from happening. But again, Paul had said, we all have to stay together if we're going to make it. And the centurion wants to spare Paul's life. So their boss says, no, you're not going to kill anyone. Rather, if anyone can swim, jump off and start swimming. If you can't swim, find a piece of the ship that's broken apart, hold on to it, and drift in to the shore. So those who can swim, swim. Those who can float, float. And by bit by bit, they all reach the beach safely. Everyone reaches the shore. Not one is lost. Safe at last. But, act three, the snake. So now, at last, everything seems to be going great for Paul. Finally, you know, his prediction that they wouldn't lose their lives has come true. The inhabitants of the island of Malta come. They start caring for these shipwrecked folks on the beach. They even start a fire to keep them warm on the beach that first cool, wet evening. And Paul, being the the helpful fellow that he is, is helping to keep the fire going. And he grabs a bundle of sticks to to put onto the fire. And as he's setting that bundle of sticks on the fire, he's all of a sudden bitten by a venomous snake. Something to look out for, by the way, if you're going on the Brookside camping trip. Just if you're putting, putting anything on the fire, just check. Make sure there's no snakes in there. Um, but Paul, in a move that, you know, hey, maybe this inspired Taylor Swift many years later. Uh, he just shakes it off, shakes the snake right off. And the first of us laughed a lot more at that. That's a, that's a, I wasn't sure if it was going to land, but uh, so he shakes it off and he's completely fine. Chapter 28, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. 
But when they had waited a long time and saw that no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds and said that he is a god. They go from thinking that Paul is surely a condemned murderer because even if he has escaped from the sea, now the, the gods are, are becoming, uh, still finding a way to take his life and punish him to, to now seeing that he's vindicated in his innocence. And, and then Paul actually returns their hospitality and again cares for them. He heals some of their sick on the island. And then after three months of wintering on Malta, they finally set sail once again and make it at long last all the way to Rome. Okay, so at this point in the story of Acts, there are now only 14 verses left. Only 14 more verses for Luke to recount uh, Paul's time in Rome. Only 14 more verses. Guess how many verses he uses to tell us the journey of Paul getting to Rome? Twice as many? Higher. Three times as many? Still higher. Four times as many? That's, that's close. You, Luke uses 60 verses. Slightly over four times as many remain in the book of Acts at this point to tell us how Paul survives and endures the journey to Rome. And this is significant because at this time, again, people writing letters and documents, they're not sitting down at a word processor typing these things out and just hitting print and if they want another one, running it through the copier. This is, Luke is writing this by hand, 60 verses. So I didn't have the whole thing read. We wouldn't have had time for the sermon. We just would have said, thanks be to God, and then left. So a long, incredibly detailed account. Why does Luke spend so much time here? We mentioned last week, again, that Luke records this story of, of Paul's encounter with Jesus in the Damascus Road three separate times in the book. Again, all of these would have been handwritten and then hand-copied. And, and as... <laughs> As followers of Jesus, we believe that the, the scriptures are inspired by God down to each, every individual word in this book. Every word of those 60 verses. Which means we have to ask the question, why does Luke, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, spend so much time here? I think there are several reasons. First, uh, I think just the mere amount of space and ink that Luke uses here shows us how far Rome was from Jerusalem. He's sort of literarily showing us the reality of the, of the geography, how far away it is. We get a sense of the distance there. It shows us how far the gospel is traveling from where it began in Jerusalem. Uh, second, it shows God's determination to bring the, gospels to the, the gospel to the end of the earth. Uh, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the very beginning of the book, Jesus had commanded, promised that his followers would be witnesses even to the ends of the earth. Jesus' word is coming true. And third, it shows God's protection and deliverance of Paul in every way, despite every possible obstacle. And I think this is the biggest reason, actually, that Luke spends so much time here. He's showing us that God is absolutely in control. That he will bring his purpose to pass. That nothing can stand in his way. That he will protect and serve and care for and rescue his people even in the face of impossible circumstances. 
think Luke is reminding the churches that will read his account, including ours today in Kansas City, that God will be with us, that he will deliver us, that we can endure anything because Jesus has overcome everything. So what do we learn here about how to endure together as a church? Well, three quick things. First, we endure in hope. Back in verse 20, Luke recounts that all hope was fading, that they could be saved. They're despairing that this is, this is going to come to an end. There is no hope. The soldiers, the sailors, the other passengers and prisoners, they look around at the storm, they look around at their circumstances, they say there is no way that we are going to make it. And friends, that's the kind of world that we live in today. <laughs> I mean, people look around they watch the news, we read the, the paper, you see what's happening. And they say, there's no way we're going to make it. Wars and famines, joblessness, racism, shootings, crime, illness, cancer, death, addiction, abuse, abandonment, unfaithfulness, divorce. Just to name a few, I look around and say, how are we going to make it? We can look at a world that has all of those things swirling about in it. A world that wants to give up hope. That's the kind of place we live. But what does Paul do in that moment? He says, don't be afraid. He says, take courage. Ultimately, he says, I have a message from God that we will be rescued. And I love what Daryl Bach, who's perhaps the leading commentator and scholar on Luke Acts in our time, he, he writes this. He says, the scene where Luke is giving, or Paul is giving hope to the sailors, he says, this scene is a symbol of how Paul's message saves because of the connection to Paul's God. This is not an allegory. It is good literary style to have one event also symbolize another reality. Luke is recording this moment on the sea where they're despairing and Paul gives a message of hope from God that they will all be rescued as a picture of the much bigger plan that rescue that God is working out in the world. And that if you put your hope in the message of rescue that God has proclaimed, you can have hope. A message that says Jesus has acted definitively in history to redeem and restore the world and that one day he will come and complete that work. And until then, we invite anyone and everyone to come and join a community of hope. Seeking to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth even now as it is in heaven. We endure in hope. Second, that we endure together. We endure together. We need each other to endure in this. And we see this all over the story. I mean, for one, Paul says that they all must stay on board the ship together if they're going to be rescued. And moreover, we see hospitality, this exchange of of hospitality and care. Paul shares words of encouragement with the others, uh, people on the ship. He, he serves them food. Once they're shipwrecked on Malta, the, the inhabitants of the island come and, and care for them and provide for them, allow them to stay with them. Paul is engaged in, in healing and helping those on the island as well. So how do we endure? We, we endure in communities of interdependence, of giving and receiving help. 
I've seen this happen in our church community time and again. Uh, recently, we've been in a season of having lots and lots of, of babies born. I think we've had eight or nine born uh, since the beginning of summer, and our children's ministry uh, pastor, Anna Lynn, was telling us on Tuesday in our staff meeting that um, starting with, with our babies, because you should be born any minute now, uh, if I have to leave in the middle of a sermon, that might be why, uh, starting with our baby, there's going to be 18 babies born between now and February, born in our congregation, 18 that's crazy. And, but I've watched again and again, even in the season of so many new babies being born, our congregation step up and bring meals and serve one another and care for each other. We've been recipients of the past of that care with our, with our girls and the encouragement that is to have someone come and bring you a meal. You open your homes to one another for community group. You show up at the hospital when one another is sick. You share financial resources with, the other, with one another in times of need. As a pastor, I get to have a front row seat to that happening so many times in the midst of this community. We endure together. We need each other. You know, and it's not too late, even this moment, to, to sign up for Razors, which starts this coming week, or, or for a community group this fall, to find a way to connect with a smaller group of people, to really know and be known, to be able to endure together with someone. And finally, and most importantly, we endure together because of Jesus' victory. Because the one theme that is unmistakable in these 60 verses that Luke takes to tell this story is that Jesus is victorious over anything and everything that would stand in the way of his mission being accomplished, that would stand in the way of his plan being brought to fruition. Nothing can stop Jesus. Not sailors, not soldiers, not those sailors and soldiers' stupidity, not our stupidity, not storms, not shipwrecks, not snakes. Nothing can stop him. Amen? Nothing. They are no match for God's power in bringing the gospel to where he wants it to go. And when you trace the storyline of the Bible through from the very beginning all the way to the very end, you find the image of the snake, the storm, and the sea. All images that show up in this story here. And they're all pictures, all images in the, the storyline of Scripture of evil and chaos and despair. In Genesis, as part of the creation account, God brings order out of the swirling sort of chaotic waters. In the Psalms, evil and chaos is often described as the, as the sea monster, the Leviathan that God triumphs over. In Genesis chapter 3, evil is personified as the snake. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we read that the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, is finally defeated. Jesus in the gospel speaks and storms are stilled. Brothers and sisters, we can endure because Jesus has defeated sin and evil and chaos in our world. And yes, it still manifests itself. Yes, it's still real. But it has been defeated. And Jesus is coming back to put an end to it finally. And so we can endure and hope together, celebrating Jesus' victory over it all. We can endure anything because he has overcome everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come before you right now 
because of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Because of his forgiveness of my sin, his forgiveness of our sin, we can stand boldly before him as sons and daughters. Would you help us to endure? Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that gives us hope. A seal, a promise that one day you will complete the work you've begun in us and the work that you've begun in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.